nothing to do with our uh, Christmas trees today. That's what happens when people take things out of context and misapply them. Uh, so it didn't, it was, you know, nothing, nothing to apply to us there on that. But if you're worshiping a tree, if you're worshiping anything besides Christ, then it does apply, right? Anyway, the fact of the matter is, is that what we call a Christmas tree, which we have a beautiful one decorated right up here, it originated in Christian Germany some 2,000 years after that passage in Jeremiah was written down uh, that was criticizing wooden idols. Uh, but the Christmas tree originated really from two Christian symbols that were common in homes because people always like to have symbols that remind them of things. One thing that people commonly had even hundreds and hundreds of years ago was something called a paradise tree. And uh, usually it was an evergreen and it was decorated with apples or other fruit that reminded people uh, it was a symbol of the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden and that is also in the paradise of God in heaven. And uh, so that tree, we're going to go make a comeback, okay? We're going to look at that verse in a moment. And then the second symbol was what was called a Christmas pyramid. And you find historical evidence of them going way back there. And uh, in fact, you can still buy them today. They're battery powered instead of uh, powered by a candle. But it was a triangular shelf. And they had Christmas figurines and different things, and it was decorated on top. They kind of had a little fan up there, and they would light candles around it, and the heat from the candle would kind of move. The center part moved, and it would kind of heat that so it would turn slowly. And, and before electricity, that's, it was also a fire hazard. But it, nevertheless, they had those things. And a couple of these things kind of come together as you get close to the Middle Ages, and that they began to decorate trees and, and to and to worship God, not the tree, and it became kind of a tradition, even in uh, Christian Germany back in those days. In fact, it's said that the great reformer, Martin Luther, in the 1500s was out worshiping the Lord, and he looked through, and he saw how the stars were shining through the trees, and he began to worship the greatness of God because of it. And it seemed like that the greatness and the glory of the stars that God had made were decorating the trees, and uh, so he decided that he cut down one of those evergreens, which represents eternity, and brought it in, and that he decorated it with various things, and even put little candles to, emu to, to emulate the stars shining that had reminded him of what he had seen. And maybe a little bit after that, he invented the first fire department, because that definitely would have been a fire hazard doing that. But that's what they used to do in the old days. But that's kind of some of the things that are written down that, that kind of developed into this thing. Thing. So the Christmas tree became a Christian symbol. So Christian, you don't have to feel guilty about having one in your home. And it's become part of our season. And any of the uh, pagan connections it may have had were lost a long time ago. Which, by the way, even the names of the days of the week that we have come from a pagan background. And that doesn't mean you're worshiping any of those things by calling it whatever day it is. So at any rate... Christians believe we can use this season that's kind of developed in a positive way because probably, if you want to know the truth, Jesus' birth, we can celebrate it every day, but Jesus, more than likely, there's probably like a 99% chance that he was not born on December. I don't want to mess up anything for anybody here. He probably wasn't actually born on December 25th. That according to everything we can study, it was probably closer to the spring. But there's nothing wrong with having a certain time of year that people used to do other things that now they just focus on that time of God's greatest gift to mankind. And you see that. You see that what we call the Christmas spirit. And people are decorating. And even people who aren't Christians get into it, right? 
And there's just something about the spirit of the season. You see it on the media. You see it everywhere. And what an opportunity it is for us that people are drawn to this. What is it that draws them? It's this whole thing of giving and of helping people who are struggling and helping people who are having a tough time and, and kind of going beyond. See, if you didn't believe in God and all you believe is like evolution and you just believe that, you know, you just live and that's it. Why would you want to give to anyone? I mean, evolution teaches natural selection and survival of the fittest, right? But what is it about you then that would make you want to just feel moved by this and want to give? I'll tell you what it is. It's the fact that the truth is we're all created by a loving God. And this is a little bit of that thumbprint of him that's in our soul. And even people who don't know God, they're touched by this. They're moved. They're drawn to this. There's just something that feels different about this time of year when, with all the giving and just a warmness, right? And what it is is we're drawn to the very thing that is at the heart of God because God is a God of love and God is a God of grace. And God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave. And so when we're giving, we're a lot like God, that is, God had put that in. And so I think people are drawn to it. And we need to maximize this time of year uh, because of that. So we celebrate this as what we call uh, a holiday, right? Which comes from holy day, right? You know, that's, that's kind of what is set aside. But the thing about it is, the Old Testament had prescribed holy days. That means days that were set apart from normal days that they did something different that taught them spiritual truths. Now, when Jesus came along, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to do what? To fulfill the law. Well, all of those things the New Testament tells us were shadows. They were types of Jesus. From Passover to Day of Atonement to everything. They were all shadows. Jesus fulfilled all of those things. And the good news, are you with me? In the New Testament, there are no days that are holier than any other days. There are, no there are no subscribed or prescribed festivals or holy days that we legalistically have to keep. And the reason why is every day is holy. Even remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy. We find out from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God who have ceased from their own works just like God did. We've ceased from our own works and we are resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. So you actually keep the spirit of the Sabbath seven days days a week as you rest in the finished work of Christ. He did the work. You can't work your way into heaven. You're trusting in what Jesus did. And so all of this, so, so the thing about it is every day is Christmas now, amen? Every day is Easter Sunday. Every day is a Sabbath for us as we have this relationship with God through what Jesus did. But there's nothing wrong with setting aside special times to focus on some things, which is what we're doing here, right? Uh, nothing wrong with that, that we purposely reflect on certain aspects of God's grace. Oh, even by the way, I think it's a good idea for parents, my personal opinion, to even take this opportunity to teach our kids about some of the great Christians who have gone before us. One of them happened to be a bishop that lived in the 300s A.D. And he was a bishop and a teacher and a preacher of the gospel that was so passionate about the truth of the gospel. His name was Nicholas. So I'm talking about Saint Nicholas. There really was a leader in the early church whose name was Nicholas. And uh, in fact, uh, Nicholas uh, lived in what was Asia Minor then. It would be what modern-day Turkey would be part of that area these days. And he died in the year 350 
A.D. He was a very active leader. He was a part of the, one of the very first church councils, the Council of Nicaea in 325. You see, before this, it was hard for all of the leaders of the church after the apostles died and then those that they had discipled had begun to die. But the Roman Empire were persecuting them and they were scattered. And scattering them caused them to spread the gospel all over the known world at that time. But they couldn't meet together because why? How could you take all the leading pastors and leaders from all the areas and get them together? Uh, it would have been too dangerous because the Romans wanted to kill them. But in this time, when it got to about 325, the Emperor Constantine had supposedly had this conversion experience. Not sure how sincere it was or not. But yet then he made it safe and legal. The government actually supported, let's get all the pastors together and let's let them make sure everybody's on the same page that we're teaching what the apostles taught. So when the Council of Nicaea came together, this may seem boring to you, but it's really neat stuff, I'm promising you. When the council came together in 325, it wasn't to try to figure out what do we believe. You know, if you watch the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that, they try to make you think that they come in and try to figure out, let's form this religion. No, that's not at all what happened. And history bears this out, that what they did is they came together to determine what have we always believed and what have we always said were the books of the Bible and and what have we always believed about Christ. What did those who taught us, who were taught by those that were taught by the apostles, who were taught by Jesus himself, what did they say? And they hashed it out right there. In fact, Nicholas was at that council and he was so passionate about what we preached about last week, about that Christ was not only fully human, but he was fully God, the deity of Christ. He was so passionate about that. There was a heretic there. One of the bishops was off track, and he didn't believe in the deity of Christ. And the discussion became so passionate, it said that Nicholas actually whopped Arius upside the head. He was so passionate about defending the deity of Christ, Santa Claus slugged Arius. I mean, it's just, wow. Okay, so anyway, this is the guy we're talking about. And he was one of the heroes of the faith, especially in that day. But you know what? His life matched his doctrine. You know, there's a lot of things to get up and teach and believe things, but how do you live? That things weren't like they were now. And there were a lot of families that were oppressed. There were a lot of children that were in need. And Nicholas was one of those that became known for his compassion for the poor. And that he would regularly go and take most of, his, of what he had. I mean, he gave away most of everything that he had to help poor people, people in need, and especially children. And it became a legend. And then he died. By the way, before the Council of Nicaea, in the earlier days of his ministry, history records that he was actually tortured and imprisoned because of his faith under the emperor Diocletian. And as he began to give everything away, as he began to set this example, after he was gone, people began to want to remember to glorify God and honor Christ to give to those who had had need. And they also were following the example of the one who tried to teach them to do that, this pastor called Nicholas, and they were calling him Saint Nicholas. He was set apart to serve God. And then they began to do this in memory of him and in honor of him. And the kids that received this, they would mention about Saint Nicholas, and they couldn't say Saint Nicholas. It came out Santa Nicholas, Santa Claus. And Santa Claus is one way of saying Saint Nicholas. That's where that whole word came from. And I think it comes a time, it comes a time in our children's lives where they understand and learn that there is some biblical, there is such Christian connection to what is going on around us that we could glorify God with. 
And so we came to that point with our kids and looked forward to having those talks with our grandkids. That there is real depth and there's meaning. It's not a fairy tale. See what I'm saying? There's some biblical foundation back there that uh, sometimes it does get skewed with all the lights and all the glamour and all the stuff. But what I want to tell you today is all that stuff is to be symbols to draw us to the real thing. See, symbols are not something that are the real thing. They just represent it. They cause us to think about it, right? You may wear a wedding ring. That's not your marriage. You can actually wear one of these and not be married. But it's something that you have as a visible reminder of the vow and the commitment that you made to your spouse, okay? We have symbols, and these things that we have as decorations should be symbols to cause us to worship God and to think about the real thing. And the truth is, is that we're talking about the Christmas tree. God's Christmas tree is that God has his own tree. Did you know that? That he gave. And uh, it, it's what gives all of our trees and all of our decorations, it's what gives it meaning. Without it, none of this would mean anything. What happened on that tree is not only... What Christmas is about, but the gospel is all about. Can I give you a, get ready, here we go. In 1 Peter, uh, we studied through this a few months, a month or two ago. He's talking about Christ. And here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He says, speaking of Jesus, who himself, he himself, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And he's quoting that last part of that verse from Isaiah, showing that that whole thing that Isaiah was prophesying about is about you not just being healed from some physical disease, but going from actually spiritual death to spiritual life. Our baptism becomes a symbol of this as it represents us identifying with Jesus' death to pay for our sins and then his resurrection that gives us new life. And if we're identifying by faith with that, we also, because we're trusting Christ and have entered into this relationship with Christ, we have died to sins that we might live for righteousness. We could have never done that before because all of our righteousness was as filthy rags. We had to be clothed with Christ. We've gone through that death and that resurrection, died to the old self and a new life in Christ. That's what he's talking about. But did you notice? Where did he bear those sins? It was on that tree. That tree. So what am I saying? God's Christmas tree. He's already given it to us. It's also called a cross. The cross is God's Christmas tree. So I want to look at that for just a few more moments and look at some of the presents that lie at the foot of that tree to remind us of gifts that God has given us in Christ that are different than the gifts that we give each other. The gifts that we give each other, I mean, sometimes we're under pressure that I need to give you something. Uh, you're probably expecting something. So here's what ends up happening in our culture. We end up spending money that we really don't have to buy stuff that nobody needs to give to someone that has everything. Right? You say, I don't know what to give them because they seem like they've got everything they need, right? So we spend money we don't have to buy stuff that nobody needs to give to someone that already has everything. Right? So the gifts that God gives us is a lot different than that because they are things that never perish. They are things that last forever. And so let's take a look at God's tree, all right? God's tree. Now, in the New Testament, as we're looking there, uh, there are two Greek words in the original. As you know, the original uh, New Testament was written in Koine Greek. There are two words that are translated in our English translations as cross, okay? And the first one is storos, and it has to do with an upright stake, 
uh, uh, pail or stake. It took various forms during the times. There was times it was just a stake. There were times it was in the form of what we now look at as a cross. There were times it was in the form as an X. They impaled people on those, and they tortured and executed them right there. That's what that referred to. Sometimes that word staros was used symbolically, like Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 1.18 when he says the message of the cross. Well, he's using it uh, there symbolically like that message of the cross is talking about the gospel. The truth that we're all sinners and Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He paid our sin debt that we could never pay on the cross. He says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. All right, so that word is used there. And um, so uh, some people actually want to worship the symbol of the cross. Did you know that? I mean, not just Christmas trees, but even the symbol of a cross, they want to worship that like it's a lucky charm or has some kind of power. The only thing it does is it's a symbol to remind us of what happened on the real cross. And that's where the power is, right? You don't worship the symbol rather than what it symbolizes. It's all about what happened on that cross, Jesus paying for our sins. And the other word that is sometimes translated or means or refers to the cross in the New Testament is the Greek word zulon, which is used both of of trees and is also used of the cross in a couple of passages. The word actually means a tree, wood, piece of wood, or anything made of wood. And it was used of the cross several times. In fact, the verse that I read to you in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, a moment ago, that's the word that was there, that Jesus, he bore He bore in himself our sins on the tree. And he's using that to refer to the cross, right? Another place Peter used that uh, was in Acts chapter 5, verse 30. When they had been threatened by the council, this is the same guys that masterminded the crucifixion of Jesus. They were threatened by him. And this is where he said we ought to obey God rather than men, right? And he says this, he goes, The God of our fathers, like, you know, you pretend to worship him too, right? Just like we're talking about the same God here. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. He uses that same word there referring to the tree, which is referring to the cross. And uh, he said, you know, you guys are guilty and we're all guilty because Jesus died for all of us. Amen. Uh, And there's another place where it's used to refer to a tree. And um, that's one I've referred to already in Revelation 2-7. A different tree besides just a regular tree or the cross is this one. He says in Revelation 2-7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It also refers to the tree of life. And here's the thing. You need to put your faith in what happened on that tree that's a cross where Jesus died if you want to partake of the tree of life in the paradise of God forever. You see the connection there? So, uh, the Old Testament, in fact, Cheryl read, and I love as we as we worship, as we read verses, as we read scripture, and as we sing scripture, and as we sing these songs and hymns and, 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 and spiritual songs and things like that, as we mix all that together and we're worshiping God. Uh, but um, several of these, these references in the Old Testament uh, of a tree is symbolic of the Messiah that would come. Did you know that? So God's Christmas tree was planned a long time ago. Did you realize, as you study the Old Testament, you Bible scholars out there, that oftentimes in the Old Testament, wood is a reference to humanity? For instance, even the Ark of the, and gold is a symbol of deity, that even the Ark of the Covenant was wood overlaid with gold. Who was Jesus when he came? Fully human, fully God. Oh, well, 
All right, so you, maybe your mind's blown there or you're just not getting it. <laughs> but it's symbolic of the dual nature of Christ already way back there. But that, that many times that wood or the tree referred to humanity. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, he talks about this. And so he says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. You know who Jesse was? That was David's father. So it's going to be somebody that comes from David. But before that, Jesse, that he says that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This branch that's going to grow up out of Jesse's family, out of the family of David, is going to bear fruit. There are so many other passages, we don't even have time to look at them. But in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, Zechariah 3.8, Zechariah 6.12, we see him as the branch of the Lord. We see the prophecies about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, as the righteous branch, the servant of God, the branch whom God would raise up on the human scene to give righteousness and life to the nation and to all who would believe in him. And this was declared to be the work of God's doing, not man's. And so all through the Old Testament, there are these symbols connected to the Messiah as a branch that would come. God's Christmas tree had been prophesied. And from these passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God has given us his own special Christmas tree. And it's the cross. Through the his person of his son, Jesus Christ. And in his son's work or death on the tree, on that cross. But notice, God's tree's not, as I said, decorated with lights and with ornaments and with tinsel. And surrounded underneath with gifts and presents that we're going to try to figure out who we can re-gift them to next year. You ever accidentally re-gift something to somebody who actually gave it to you? And it's like really embarrassing? Yeah, okay, you have. Um, so anyway... Uh, so those, those, those gifts are different than the gifts that are under God's tree that he gives us. They last forever and ever. They were purchased by the death of God's son on God's tree, the cross. All right? So, in fact, if you think about it, the cross itself is one of the biggest gift of all. Right? God's tree is a gift. God's gift. That is the greatest gift of all. Um, so when we talk about God's Christmas tree, we're talking about the cross and we're talking about what happened there. We're talking about Christ's sacrificial death on that cross as payment for the sins of all people from all times. Have the potential to open this gift. Uh, scripture stresses that salvation is by grace through faith alone. By grace alone through faith alone, through Christ alone. That there is no other way for sinful humanity to be made pure and perfect enough, holy enough, to live with a perfect God. And because this perfect God loves us so much, He prepared a way that our sins could be paid for, our sin debt paid in full, and even though we're not perfect, even though we are sinners, we could be made perfect, we could be made holy, so that we could have this relationship with God. But a price had to be paid, because God is also a just God. He couldn't just overlook it, He couldn't just overlook our sin and still be holy and perfect and just. Something had to be done about it, and the only way was for Christ to come to this world, a perfect example and representative of humanity being fully flesh, and a perfect example and representative of God being fully God at the same time. And when Jesus did that, that he gave his life. He gave the greatest gift of all on the cross when he gave all of that for our salvation.
Now, the thing about it is, is, as I say so often, I can think of thousands and thousands of reasons why I ought to love God. But I'm going to tell you, I can't think of one good reason why he should have loved me enough to have done that. Except he just chose to. That's grace. Grace always goes. It's extending favor to those who do not deserve it. And sometimes we talk about being gracious and merciful to somebody. We'll say, well, they sure don't deserve it. That's the point. Otherwise, they would be earning it. It would be a payment. It wouldn't be grace. This is it. And so he says in Ephesians 2.8 that it's by grace, through faith, that we're saved. And it's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Did you hear that? It's a gift of God. It's not by works that we perform. In fact, this is where Christianity is different from all other religions that are all about you doing all these things to merit your way to whatever's next. In the gospel, it tells you that the way you get started is by realizing and confessing that you can't do it. You are lost. You're a sinner. You have to take ownership of your sin and you confess that sin and you, you acknowledge that sin and you acknowledge the fact that you are helpless to save yourself. And you turn from that to trusting the Savior. That's called repentance, by the way. And as we trust Him and put our faith and our trust and our reliance totally in what Jesus did on the cross and then we live our life by the power of His resurrection, that's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to receive this gift. And then you become, Ephesians 2.10 says, His workmanship. You're His work of art that He begins to mold and shape your life in ways that you never could have done by yourself. You're never going to be perfect until he calls you home, until you get to heaven. We're still, even though we're saved and you're a new person, you still live in this body of flesh that's cursed by sin, but we're going to keep growing. So you are saved, and then we're continuing, we're justified, we're continuing to be sanctified as we grow into more Christ-likeness. He works on our attitude, our actions, and things like that. And then one of these days, we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin in his presence. And this is what God wants to do. So God's Christmas tree, or salvation, is a gift. God's tree itself is a gift. This salvation is a gift. Now, let me say this. Gift means someone else paid for it. It's a free gift. I'm going to tell you this Christmas, if somebody gives you a gift and you open it and it's what you've always been wanting, that, that, that you want, what I like to do is something that somebody really wants, but they're never going to spend the money on it for themselves, right? You know, as long as it's not too expensive. But anyway, um, but, uh, but it's something you've always wanted, and you're like, wow, I can't believe you paid for this and you gave this to me. But then the next month you get a bill in the mail, and you're being charged for it. You know right away you weren't given a gift. You've been suckered into something, right? So why is it when we receive God's gift that he paid for, do we feel like we've got to pay it back? You could never pay it back. What we do in the life we live and the good works that come out of us aren't to pay it back. It's just the life of Christ flowing through us and coming out to glorify him for what he's doing. Uh, so to say that it's free means someone else paid for it. Now, it's not cheap because it costs God a lot to save you. See, when something is cheap, that means that it is discounted uh, greatly compared to what its value should be. And that's not the gospel. Free means it may have cost a lot, but someone else paid for it. And that's why he tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Do you know that's why there's death in this world? It's because we've all sinned. It is. Why would God let this kind of stuff? Well, God created the world perfect, but he created us with a free will. 
not to be robots or like animals operating on instinct, and we chose sin. And all of us have chose sin. We've inherited from Adam. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners by nature, and we're all sinners by choice. We've actually chosen to do it. We're sinners, and the wages of sin, all we can earn is death, and that means ultimately separation from God. So wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ Jesus our Lord, it's only in Jesus that the gift of God. So he offers this free gift to us and it's something that you receive. How do you receive it? For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. You receive the gift by faith, by trusting in him and believing in him. Paul referred to salvation as a free gift no less than nine times. It was a great cost, but the cost was to Jesus on the cross, God's Christmas tree. So let's look at the gifts really quick in Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to fly through this because there's so much here. You just got to study it later. As you look at Romans chapter 5, you're going to see that there are a lot of things that we have, and it's all because of what Jesus did on the tree, on the cross. Okay? You're going to follow me really quick? You're going to have to write down some of these because I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw them out there. I'm not going to land on them, all right? We have right there, as you get into Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, you find that we've got, just in the first couple of verses, we've got the gift of justification. Now, what does justification mean? That means that once you receive Christ as your Savior, uh, it's been said that God looks at you just as if you'd never sinned. Right, And that's a good way to illustrate it. But because Jesus took your sin debt and he paid for it on the cross. So now when God looks at your heart, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ. And so not only did he take my sin, but Romans 4, it talks about how he imputed or he deposited in my account Christ's righteousness. So when he looks at my heart, he doesn't see my sin. He sees Jesus's righteousness there. And that's that justification is that even though I was a guilty sinner, Christ died for me, the sinner, and when I trusted him, my sin debt, he stamped paid in full on it. And so now he looks at me not only as forgiven, but not guilty. Not guilty. <laughs> I mean, that makes me want to shout. There's no better gift than that. Justified. That means that if I were to die, I know I'm going to be with him forever in heaven. My sins are gone. I've been justified. But not only that, we have peace with God and we have access to God. Let's look at that verse, verse 1, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, how we receive that? What does it say? By faith, by trusting him. You don't earn this. You don't deserve it. You receive it. I'm telling you, if somebody can give you the greatest gift there is, but if you don't receive it, if you don't take it, if you don't open it, you'll not have it. You have to receive it. How do you receive it? By faith. So we've been justified by faith. We have what? We not only have justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Sometimes when somebody's nearing death or they're going through a struggle, we'll ask you, have you made your peace with God? And I've heard people say, yes. I say, well, I would be interested to hear about that. That's like the most important thing that we could talk about. Too often people have said, well, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to pray for people and this and that. And I have to say, that the sad news is that the Bible says that, that is, you can never get peace with God that way because you're a sinner. There's only one way to have peace with God. And that is through putting your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross, realizing you're a sinner and trusting him fully. That being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so here's a person that would try to do all kinds of things to try to get in good with God except the one thing that God asks. And that is admit you can't do it and you trust me completely. 
for what I did for you. Why is it? Well, it's that old flesh that wants to be proud and wants to do it itself, it seems like. So this is God's great gift. By peace, he says, he, he means that, that all those sins and all those barriers that separated us from God have been removed. We have peace with God. And we have access to God. Access. Uh, in verse 2, he says, through him, the next verse, through him, something else we have. These are gifts that we have because of the cross. He says we have obtained access by what? By faith, by trusting him. Now we have access into this grace. How do we receive this grace? How do we have access into this favored relationship with God? It's by trusting him, by faith, into this grace in which we stand. So now we have access. Before that way was closed, but now this way is open. Does that impress you? Well, it should. And I want to say that all the other religions of the world actually shut people out from God. You know why? Because they themselves provide no real access to God. Why? Because they keep people from God by turning them away from Jesus Christ. Because they don't seek to come to God by God's way, by God's Christmas tree, the cross. The person and work of Jesus Christ is what I mean there. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 6, did he not say, I am. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you just can't lump Jesus in with all the other religions and things like that because he said he was the only way. Not the best way, the only way. There aren't many paths, according to Jesus. There's only one path because there's only one who came down and paid for your sins. There's only one who not only paid for your sins but rose again, conquering sin, death, the grave, hell. There's only one that has ascended to the Father's right hand. There's only one that can take you to heaven. There's only one that's made the round trip already and knows where it is. (laughs) He's the only one that paid for your sins. And so this is what he's done. Not only do we have access, but we have hope, and we have hope in the glory of God. Do you see that? We have access by faith into the grace which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We've got this hope. We've got this hope because of this. Let's um, think about that, because glory refers to the awesome character and beauty of God's divine essence. And hope is a word that has both active and passive meanings. Actively, it means a confident expectation of God fulfilling everything he said. And passively, it may refer to the thing hoped for. So we're excited, we're anticipating, and we know that the object of what we're hoping for, a final perfection in heaven forever, a new body, a new heavens, new earth, uh, this is what keeps us motivated during these tough days. An anticipation of total redemption, uh, being totally free from sin, new body, heaven, all of that. And then there's a gift of triumph, even in trials. Anybody got any trials going on even during Christmas time? Sometimes they just get worse, don't they? Well, see, even though you may be redeemed and you may be trusting Christ, we live in a sin-cursed world, and we still deal with a sin-cursed flesh, so we're going to have tribulation, right? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that the next verse he says that not only that we have hope, we have triumph in trials and tribulation, and we also have the love of God through the Holy Spirit, God's presence. These are some more gifts, all right? So take a quick look at that. I'm going to go to this next verse, verse 3, where he says that more than that, he says, we rejoice even in sufferings. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Not if you've opened God's greatest gift. Because we can even rejoice in sufferings. Not anybody can just say that, can they? But we can. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And then we come right back to hope. 
And and character produces hope. God is building us. God is working on us and, and, and making us more like Christ. So this gift requires us spending time in the instruction manual. You ever get a gift and it just doesn't work out or you got to put the thing there, whatever. And, and as men, a lot of times we make a mess out because we just won't read the instructions. Well, God's given us instruction manual on his gift, and that is his word, the Bible. We've got to spend time in there. You know, we hate to think about trials and tribulation, but he offers us not only the ability to survive them, but to glory in them according to this verse. So as we place our gifts under the tree, May it remind us of the fact God has provided us with a tree of life through the person and work of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that with God's tree comes in imperishable, eternal, unfathom, unfathomable. I don't even want to say that. I'm going to say it again. Unfathomable. I got it down now, don't I? That means you can't fathom it. You can't imagine it. Unfathomable. That's like three or four times now. Gifts of God's grace that he's given to us. And uh, so here's gifts that you can't break. Huh? I mean, kids, they'll have, the, they'll have those things broke in no time, right? How about this? I get one of my favorite little toys when I was a kid. I still remember this. And then my brother would want to play with it. I finally have to let him play with it. And he'd break it. These gifts won't break. These gifts that he gives us. They're always timely, and they're exactly what we need. No exchanges are necessary. And there's other gifts. Can I just mention a couple more before we wrap up? That is, in verse 9, he talks about deliverance from wrath. Aren't you glad that the judgment of God that's coming on this world, that you've been delivered because of faith in Christ? That's a gift that he gives you because of the cross. It costs God a lot to deliver you from his wrath. That means his son took the wrath of God that you deserve on that cross so you could be free. Wow. Christ living in us, there's one, through his spirit living in us, the gift of rejoicing. I'm going to look real quick at some of those verses because he tells us in this passage that in verse 6, he says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for, will, uh, for one scarcely will die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God Verse 8, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, there's a price God paid on the cross. Much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. I'm so glad to know that I've been saved from the wrath of God because Jesus took it for me on the cross. And then in verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, his death paid for my sins. Now, he says, much more, much more now that we are reconciled, now that we're saved, shall we be saved by his life, that we were, we were forgiven because of his death, but now we're living with his life living through us. We're saved by his life. We have Christ living in us. We also have rejoicing. Now, here's a gift that never gets old. There's joy and there's rejoicing. What's the difference? Well, I think rejoicing is when you let the joy come out, right? You're rejoicing. I have to wonder if the world around us really gets the picture, the message that there's joy from God, the joy of the Lord coming through his presence, his spirit working through us, that there's joy because they don't see that coming out of us. More than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom? It's all because of him. 
We have received reconciliation. That means we've been reconciled. We sinners have been reconciled to a perfect God. These are the gifts. This is just a little bit of the gifts that are under God's tree. And I'm telling you what, it's available to each and every one of us. All we have to do is receive it by faith. It's been paid for. It's been wrapped. It's been delivered. So here's the only thing left. Why not open your gifts? Why not receive them? Pray with me. Father, thank you so much.